Oh, Mercury, patron of thieves, give me in due time some holiday cheer. I'm not much of a family man. I like to do things my own way, to acquire habits, to do little rituals, to have my own little things that I like to do. And there's something contrarian to my personality. When I see people walking in one direction, I want to... It's not that I want to walk the other way, but I want to stand in my own little corner and observe it. I want to see what they are doing, rather than necessarily do it myself. I'm generally not a person who likes to lose himself in a group. Maybe this is a weakness to my personality that I... That it takes a lot for me to identify as a member of a group. The culture I come from is very individualistic, but at the same time, a very conformative culture, where nobody's quite marching in line, but they're all marching in the same direction. But a part of me doesn't want to be part of the flock. I like to be the fly on the wall. So I have these voyeuristic tendencies. I'm a flaneur, I like to walk. I like to walk into places I don't know and casually observe people. This resonates with me when I read Norse mythology as well, because you know, the god Odin is perhaps the greatest voyeur of all, going here and there across the world, hiding behind his secret names, analyzing, probing. Some of the things that I like about New York are the things that people hate about it. That it's a dirty, menacing, alienating town, where nobody truly knows the other. I would never raise a kid here. But as a curious observer, I love to go out and just vanish. Not losing myself in the crowd, but become invisible. That's the essence of the Flaneur's voyeuristic tendencies. Is it a healthy environment? Maybe not. But it is in places like this that some of the realities about humanity really comes to light. The big city and the yearning for an automated golden age is really a desire to return to the golden ages of the mythologies to never again have to worry about a single thing. But if there's a lack of natural predators and ghosts and spirits, there's always something to take its place. New York City is full of bogeymen, people who play the role of troll in the low mythology of the city, creatures to distract us from the fact that the real troll is within. Nature can't be escaped. And maybe we ought to know better, but we don't. But it's the same with the gods. The gods also ought to know better, but they don't. And maybe it would go against their nature to do anything else but what they're doing. The lack of moderation exhibited in the big city says something about human nature, how the gods are always struggling towards security and stability, and this hope that the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge will set them free. But in the end, the result is Ragnarok, total cosmological destabilization. We tend to think of myths as something that is ultimately untrue, but I think that there's a lot of truth to this. It seems that I've gone off track here. The intent was not to give you an introduction to my dystopian Scandifuturist worldview, but to talk about Christmas or Yule. My point has probably come across that I have a very developed sense of individuality, and maybe even childishly so, but I also find refuge in community. The holidays are very tied to my sense of self. I enjoy being anchored to the world through something that I didn't really have power over. Just consider the following. Your personality traits, the way you look, uh, the language you grew up speaking. 
It's amazing that we have these tools to do with life what we want. But the entire tool chest has been handed down to us by an inconceivably high number of faceless ancestors. People with personalities just like yours and mine. Good people, bad people, squares and eccentrics, and whose traits we carry on. It's so fascinating to me because this means that I am a product of choices that other people made across thousands upon thousands of years. Doesn't that make you curious about yourself? I mean, who are these motherfuckers that, that created the things about me that are out of my control? And I think because this is out of my control, it rouses my instincts. It compels me to take ownership of it. And it results in this weird form of idolatry, maybe even a form of ancestor worship. I think my sense of Norwegianness is a decentralized thing. I'm not talking about Norway as a nation state. It's not state Shinto I'm indulging in here. It's just a handy label I can use for lack of a better term. First and foremost, I'm the son of my parents. I'm a product of my local environment, my dialect, a coastal maritime culture, which gives me some common ground with other people who grew up by the sea. It's a series of concentric circles, which is why I'm talking about cultural identity and not necessarily national identity. So I find myself here in New York City, a not-so-secret Scandinavian, wearing my homesickness like a jacket. And so Christmas to me has an aspect of what I can only characterize as ancestor worship. When I go outside and I have the American Christmas experience, there are obviously parts about it that are nice, but it doesn't have the same taste as what I'm used to. There's just too much of all that stuff that I didn't so much like about the holiday at home. And it lacks some of the things that I really loved about the holiday at home. I assume that this must be some sort of coping mechanism to, to survive the guilt of participating in the consumerist circus that the holiday has become. Because I sort of entertain myself by getting immersed in it on an ironic level. I just end up reveling in the morbidity of it. And maybe that makes me some kind of cultural pervert or something. We should be able to enjoy small, superficial things. And that certainly allows me to survive in the modern world. But I need to have my own little space, my little bubble, which I'm creating right now, I suppose, that doesn't have that ironic distance, but has a core of devotion in it. Now, I'm sure that this is an uncontroversial statement, but the holidays should be about something more than this assault on the senses. That doesn't mean that it has to be all lofty and shit. It just, you know, it demands an authenticity that money can't buy. The establishment of family traditions or even just purely personal traditions is an important factor. Little spaces and rituals that you create for yourself. A symphony of smells and flavors, of dimmed lights and music. In my family, uh, classical music was Christmas music. I did not experience many upbeat Christmas songs in the house growing up. There was no Bing Crosby or any of that shit. I associate Christmas Eve with my grandfather and later my uncle playing piano and my dad joining in on violin. The atmosphere was always happy but mellow, mysterious even. And with time, I also started associating Christmas with folk music. This was not something I got from my parents because my dad hates everything that is older than Johann Sebastian Bach. 
He once wrestled me to the ground because I was playing Renaissance music in his presence. <clears throat> the historical Scandinavian Yule is somewhere between Halloween and Thanksgiving. It's a very numinous, kind of spooky holiday, full of taboos and, and traditions that are kind of dark in their content. Yule is a very sensitive time, and you can definitely tell from Scandinavian folklore. Ever since my childhood, I was totally compelled by the darkness of the tradition. Because Yule was a treasured time, but it was a grim time, and a time of, a time of extraordinary wonder that was coupled with extraordinary horror. When the wild hunt, that is to say the Åsgasreja or Oskorej, would terrorize the countryside. And the ghosts of dead ancestors howled around the corners and edges of the house, rationally of course, the winter storms. But in Scandinavian folklore, breath and spirit are somewhat synonymous. So it goes to follow that ghosts and spirits would manifest as winds. Another peculiar custom in Norway was that people would sometimes sleep on the floor on Christmas Eve. They would fetch hay from the barn and just make their bed by the hearth. Because the idea is that on the holy night, weird things happen. Animals may be heard speaking and the dead return to their old homes. So ancestors were honored by leaving the beds empty so that they could get one single night of calm and comfort in familiar conditions. And I think there were people still doing this around 1920. Another common taboo was against any form of rotational movement, such as the craft of spinning or even dancing. This was totally forbidden after a certain point around Christmas Eve. In some regions, peasants even used to go outside and find a rowan sapling to plant in the earthen floor in a corner of the house. This is obviously impossible to do in a modern home, but it sort of foreshadows or is an interesting parallel to the later tradition of Christmas trees. I have a certain yearning for the time when spirits and goblins were not too shy to crawl up to your door, and where you were wise to never leave the house on the most holy of nights. A great Scandinavian tradition is the Yuletide beer, which had to be ready for the mass of the Apostle Thomas called Thomas Fulton in the peasant calendar, which means Thomas Fullbarrel. This occurs on December 21st, and generally speaking, in Old Norse culture, the brewing and drinking of beer was no laughing matter, and the law imposed strict exponential fines for those who failed to brew beer for the sacred holiday. But in addition to the fine, you still had to brew. And if you didn't brew for several years in a row, you could legitimately get exiled. That says something about the ceremonial purpose and the collective pressure put on people in the Yuletide tradition. The fact that Yule is also very much a drinking holiday in Scandinavia is attested all the way back to the Viking Age, with the first Old Norse attestation of the word Yule itself. That is from a scholic poem called Harald's Kvedi that talks about Drekka Yule, to drink Yule. The term Christmas beer or Jula Ol is also attested in Old Norse and should be familiar to all Scandinavians who enjoy their Juleöl. You might have noticed that many of these traditions sound dubiously Christian. Is Yule actually a pagan holiday? Well, it is and it isn't. And here's today's hot take. One of the things that I don't like particularly about Christmas or the holidays in general is that you get all these retards coming out of the woodworks going all like, Christianity doesn't have any traditions, it just stole everybody else's. Well, well that's kind of what happens when you have a folk culture going and uh, grand narratives and mythologies and practices adapting to, uh, to local cultures. And these people are so hell-bent on proving the Pope wrong that, uh, that they're willing to jump on any fucking bandwagon they can catch. Like, these people will say that the 
idea of even the historical Jesus is totally preposterous, but they will not have any issues with, I don't know, like Santa Claus being Odin or like the whole association with the certain hallucinogenic mushroom. Same with that Ishtar nonsense that pops up every Easter. It's almost as if the real Christmas miracle is one third of the internet turning into Richard Dawkins overnight. First of all, these people have a very peculiar view of culture, and secondly, they have a very limited understanding of how religions work. So, in that regard, Christmas is the one time of the year where paganism and Christianity put their dicks on the table and see whose is the biggest. Nobody's impressed, put it away. Now, I don't exactly consider myself a Christian, but I can only stomach so much of the bullshit that is floating around about pre-Christian traditions in Scandinavia at this time of year. Christmas is full of heresies and water is wet. But there's one thing that they always get wrong. And that is the coincidence of the Nordic pre-Christian midwinter feast and the winter solstice. Now to be honest, I've already written an article about this and it's on BruteNorth.com. It's called The Yuletide Sacrifices Had Almost Nothing to Do With the Winter Solstice. And due to the nature of the content of the article, I update it every year. The reason for this will become very apparent as you listen to the podcast. Uh, but yeah, the, the pre-Christian Yuletide sacrifices in the Nordic area, in, in pre-Christian Scandinavia, in Old Norse culture, uh, probably did not even coincide with the current date of the Christmas holiday. And I just want to warn you in advance, there's going to be a lot of talk about lunar cycles and numbers. Like many of the other great points that I have, uh, it is taken from a greater mind, and uh, in this case, this is Andreas Norberg, a Swedish archaeologist who wrote an amazing book called Jul, dies ting och förskyrkli tidräkning, which means uh, uh, Jul, dies ting and pre-ecclesiastical uh, time reckoning, I suppose. Uh, anyway... Um, there's a common meme going around that is really hard to uh, to eradicate that that the pre-Christian holiday of Yule was celebrated on the solstice and there's actually no evidence in Old Norse sources or any Germanic source for that matter uh, to corroborate this idea. As wonderful as the winter solstice is, our ancestors might not always have been that infatuated with it. And part of this ties into the way that the pre-Christian Scandinavian calendar was organized. Yule, Midsummer, all of these occasions are called calendrical rites uh, for a reason. Obviously because they return every year, but the way of determining when they occur uh, changes with the calendars. And the pre-Christian Norse calendar was not the same as the one we use today. It doesn't really make sense to talk about specific dates of pagan holidays in the historical sense. But with the idea that the winter solstice and Yule were one and the same, there's actually a little bit of truth to it in the sense that the holiday was astronomically determined. The pre-Christian Scandinavian sacrifices and holidays were determined according to a lunisolar calendar that went from new moon to new moon, but was corrected, you might say, at the winter solstice. This tied the lunar calendar in with the solar year because the lunar and the solar year are not equally long. So without this anchoring point, the lunar year would just spin backwards and each month would start a little earlier every year. We can compare this, for example, to the uh, Islamic calendar, which really bears the trappings of a lunar calendar system created in an area where the seasons weren't all that different and where you might even harvest several times a year. So the Islamic holy month of Ramadan uh, will occur about 11 days earlier every year. One year you might have Ramadan starting in mid-July, 
but a few years later you might have it start in January. This does not matter so much if you're in a hot environment where there are relatively small differences between the seasons. Uh, the Nordic area is certainly not such a place. In other words, they really needed a calendar system that fit the fluctuating seasons of Northern Europe. The Norse system does not just spin from year to year, it actually bounces back and forth, because the solstice kind of worked as the reset button. In other words, the first new moon after the winter solstice is always the same month. The lunar year is about 28 days shorter than the solar year, and because of the lunisolar calendar, it would seem as if the lunar phases slide back and forth at an interval of about 28 days from year to year, so that a specific lunar phase can never happen earlier than this date and never later than that date. If you see it, for instance, through the eyes of the Gregorian calendar that we use today. But this means that every three years they have to insert an extra intercalendary month. And this month was inserted around the time of midsummer, for whatever reason. This kind of leap year system seems to be integrated into the ritual calendar as well, and probably tied in with the greater cycles of the Great Bluts uh, at places such as Uppsala and Leda. So if you're really interested in the uh, reconstruction aspect of pre-Christian religion, then consider this a, a Christmas gift from me to you. Uh, Andreas Norberg provides the following rule of thumb to determine when the leap years occurred in the pre-Christian calendar. If a new moon occurs 11 days or less after the winter solstice, the intercalary month is inserted at the time of the summer solstice. This prevents the second Yule month from starting before the solstice next year. One of the things that is important to note here is that pre-Christian Scandinavian Yule was not just one occasion. It was not just one single event. This is where we can really talk about a Yule tide, because Yule actually spanned about two months. The Old Norse calendar system had two separate Yule months, called Ylir and Yulmanudr. So the winter solstice kind of happens in the middle of all of this, but it helps determine the start, and more significantly, the full moon of the second Yule month. And the full moon of the second Yule month was probably when the big shit hit the fan. That was probably when they had the big lavish feasts, the drinking parties, the ritual slaughter of animals, all of that jazz. The Icelandic chronicler Snorri Sturluson talks about an event called Hokunot in his saga of Hokun the Good in Heimskringla, one of the many terms that we have for the midwinter sacrifice. He states explicitly that this happened around the time of midwinter, which in the modern Gregorian calendar happened sometime in mid to late January. Another significant factoid is that in Snorri's time in the Julian calendar, the solstice actually coincided with St. Lucy's night, which is often regarded in Scandinavian folklore as the darkest night of the year. In other words, Snorri and indeed many of our other sources don't make the association between the solstice and the Yule celebration. It's clear that Snorri did not get the full picture, but it's one of the many things that we can use to piece together the religious year of the pre-Christian Nordic area. So following the argument posed by Andreas Nulberg that the real Yule feast happened on the Yule moon, which was the full moon of the new moon immediately following the winter solstice. In our calendar, this occasion can only happen between January 5th at the earliest and February 2nd at the latest. It is generally assumed that there were four different such occasions in the Scandinavian ritual year. This is kind of hard to prove because we really lack evidence of a midsummer feast, especially. The assumption is that after the solstices and after the equinoxes, the full moon in the following month is always the occasion for these celebrations. 
Now, it is entirely possible that these feasts went on for days on end or that they formed the climax of a more lengthy sequence of ceremonies. That is not only possible, but actually probable. We don't know much about what happened at these festivals, but uh, there was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of eating. These were social events, political events. Of course, there was sacrifices, gift exchange probably. There's a lot of different possibilities that could fit the bill, activity-wise. And why is this significant? I think if you survived the podcast so far, we are probably of like minds about this. Academics are often blamed for making the world a disenchanted place. That's one of the main critiques that I get from my audience, and that I can be iconoclastic. Now, my approach has a purpose, but it's, of course, very sad to see that uh, it doesn't always sink in. Uh, because I don't really see it that way. And this is a particularly great example why. Speaking metaphorically, the past is a knot that we are all tied to, but actually a horrible, tangled mess. And if you aren't mindful when you try to unravel it, you will only create an even bigger mess. Maybe it will always remain a mess, but that's not the point. The point is that we try and approach it in a way where we're not just making shit up as we go along. Ultimately, this is subjective, of course, you know, whatever allows you to feel connection to the past and all that jazz. But if there isn't a foundation of fact at the core of it, it might not stay, it might not stick. It is purely at the whim of fashion. And if you're interested in this on a level beyond that, I think you should be interested, you should be curious about what was actually going on. What did they actually believe? To me, personally, this is an existential question. And you can take from it whatever you want. Another wonderful thing about this is that I get to celebrate twice. I can do the regular Yule Christmas shit around December 24th, 25th. You know, I'm, I'm used to the whole extended Scandinavian Christmas thing. But I also get to have an occasion where I can cook a meal, invite some friends over, I can light a candle, I can uh, leave a glass of liquor out, a uh, libation for something that I respect or adore. And it gives me a space to reflect upon time, to revel in mysteries and things I don't quite understand. It's a great alibi, in a sense that it's a great excuse. It's an excuse to allow a little bit of sacredness into your life. Whether you are a spiritual person or a secular person, or if you're particularly religious or, or whatever, but I think this is a great example of how the scientific and academic study of the past is not an enemy of meaningful narratives. It allows us to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Uh, I think it is inherently meaningful to realize that even something as simple as calendars and the passing of time is a potential powerhouse for numinous experiences. Now, the 2019 Yule Moon will fall around the 20th and 21st of January, and it happens to coincide with the lunar eclipse. So... We're in for a real treat this round. Now I gotta wrap things up. So pour a glass in honor of times long gone and to the memory of old traditions. May they always be respected to you and yours. I hope the spirits don't torture you too much. Happy holidays. And do consider supporting me on Patreon.